I'll be reading verses 4 through 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Lord, we, can, we can't uh, stop saying, praying what we just sung to you, that we need you. And that's all the more evident as we consider these words before us. Because we do, Father, want to love like the love that is described here. And I pray that you would use your word as you so love to do, that you would use your word to teach us to love. That we would, that the result of this examination of this text would not be just frustration or just a feeling of failure as we consider how often we do fail to love one another like this. But God, that you would use us as a catalyst to make us this kind of people. That it would not be far into the future, but near into the future where this is exactly what we'll experience as a body. That we would come to church because we know that it's at church. It's in community groups. It's in meeting with our brothers and sisters that we experience a a spiritual, a supernatural kind of love that cannot be explained in mere human terms. And so I pray that that's exactly what you do through your word today. And apart from you, we know that cannot happen. So Spirit, give us the power to do what you command here. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I apologize for my voice being a little hoarse I've been fighting a bit of a, a fever. I think I have an infection of some sort uh, that I got while doing yard work, and it's taking its toll on my voice as well. So forgive me for that. Bear with me. Yeah, I've an opportunity for you guys to apply this passage. Love bears all things, right? Um, well, to start us off... Uh, I think Chris did an excellent job last week of really setting the, the, the context for where this passage comes out of in chapter 13. Uh, it's set in a larger framework of Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 really is an explanation of how these spiritual gifts should be expressed. They should... This is what the Corinthians should be pursuing in regard to ministering their gifts. It is the more excellent way. But it's also important to note that this description of love that we're so familiar with, that we'll look at specifically today in these verses in 4 through 5, comes on the heels of what Paul said in verses 1 through 3, what we looked at last week. And that if we have not love... If we're not loving in our ministry, we're worthless. We're irrelevant. And I wish off the top of my head I could remember all the, the, the four ears that Chris gave us last week. But nothing that we attempt to do will have any spiritual accomplishment. And, and that's important to understand because it's really easy to look at these verses, verses 4 through 7, and think... This is just some ideal standard. This is what we're supposed to be aiming at as Christians. But that's not true. This is basic Christianity in light of verses 1 through 3. Because if we're not doing verses 4 through 7, we're not accomplish anything in light of verses 1 through 3. So this isn't an ideal standard that Paul gives us, but a basic standard. He's not saying, shoot for the stars here. He's saying, shoot for the barn door. If you can't hit the barn door, something is seriously wrong. 
If this description of love does not characterize our life, something is wrong. And I recognize that Paul's describing a very high standard. I'll be the first to admit, and my wife will confirm it, that I struggle to love people like this, even the people I love the most. And my temptation is to want to say, if you struggle with this, is to say, well, that's okay, because God forgives you for your sin. He still loves you. And although that's true, if you're a Christian, such a statement would be largely unhelpful, if not actually cruel. Why do I say that? Because this is a description of what Christianity is supposed to look like. If I were to say, don't worry about the fact that you don't live like a Christian, that would not be helpful to you. Many people conceive of Christianity merely in terms of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, saving us from the wrath of God and freeing us from our slavery to sin. But recognize Christ did not save us merely to have us escape God's wrath. And now all we do is we wait until we die or he returns. And what we do is we just hold on to these truths that God loves us. Christ didn't merely save us from something. He saved us for something. This is an aim. He saved us to be a kind of holy people. To live like he lived. And that this isn't some pie in the sky ideal Christ saved you so that you could live this way now. That you could love this way now. So Christ does not just offer you forgiveness in heaven. Christ offers you this kind of soul. That you would actually love not just your friends but your enemies with this kind of love that's being described here. And not only that, He's called you to be a part of a new family whose members are called to love one another like this and commanded that they love you in this same way also. So the church is not merely an institution. It's a family that's designed to radiate love. And that's what he's called you to be a part of. That's an amazing thing. In a world that barely understands what this kind of love even is like. Even the world's concept of love is largely selfish. And to experience that kind of love. And God having called you into a family where that that family is commanded to love you like this. It's an amazing privilege, an amazing promise. So we need to raise our expectations and not relax until this is our experience as individuals and as a body. Until we consistently love like this. And one might reasonably say, well, that's impossible. And that's true. But recognize with God, all things are possible. As Christ said in Matthew 19, 26. And as Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not abusing that verse. Because Paul is talking about resisting sin and living a life of holiness there. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God Himself indwelling us. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. This kind of love. So we have God's power that enables us to love like this. And until we set, set such love as our standard expectation, this church will be pathetically short of what it's called to be. We need to recognize that this is what God's called us to. And so before we look at the individual depictions of love in verses 4 through 5, which is the verses we'll look at today due to time, I want to make one important grammatical note. Most English translations, because of the awkwardness of English actually, translate these uh, descriptions of loves as adjectives. 
Um, it gives the sense that Paul is describing the nature of love. But the words aren't here that are used are not adjectives. They're verbs. All of these descriptions of love are verbs. So he's less saying, what, less describing what love is like and more describing what love does. Love has an active element to it. Love doesn't simply feel, love does things. So this is less, less about what love is, but more what love does. Or maybe a better way to understand it is the nature of love is that it expresses itself actively in actions. So when Paul says love is patient, what he's saying is love acts patiently. And in total, in these verses, Paul gives 15 actions of love. First, he describes what love does in the first part of verse 4. And then he talks about what love does not, pretty extensively through verse 6. And then again, at the beginning, or the second part of verse 6, he describes again what love does. And so again, I plan to get through verses 4 and 5 this afternoon. If you want to hear the rest of the verses, you've got to come back next week. So. Let's look at the first one. Love is patient. What this means is that love patiently endures. The King James translates the word as long-suffering. I think that's a really good translation of it. It refers to having a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune, without complaint and without irritation. It means to have self-control over your passions and your emotions, which enables you to endure and bear with others. That's what it means to be patient. So it has less to do with patience in regard to time, though it has a little bit of that element. So it, it, less of being patient, like at, at a, being stopped at a stoplight. You have to be patient and not, you know, overly eager to, to move on, but more being patient with the, the car behind you that's tailgating you, being patient with other people. And we see that because of the context. Paul is talking about loving others here. Peter uses this word to describe God's attitude towards sinners when he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. So this, this sort of love that we should have for, towards one another is the very love that we experience as God is patient with us. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this passage, gives a biblical example of patience in the life of Abraham Lincoln. He writes, <clears throat> One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was Edwin Stanton. He called Lincoln a low cunning clown in the original gorilla. It was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla, he would say, when they could find one easily in Springfield, Illinois. And Lincoln never responded to the slander. But when as president, he needed a secretary of war, he chose Stanton. And when his incredulous friends asked why he would choose Stanton, he said, because he was the best man for the job. Years later, as the slain president's body lay in state, Stanton looked into the coffin and he said through tears, There lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever seen. His animosity was finally broken by Lincoln's long-suffering, non-retaliatory spirit. Lincoln's patient love won out. That's the effect of this kind of love. Love is patient. Love is also kind. Love shows kindness. Acts kindly. So kindness is care that takes action. And kindness can be expressed in many different forms. It can be through words of encouragement. It could be through acts of service, giving, 
and even thoughtful actions. For instance, I came across a story recently of Cecil Rhodes, who the Rhodes Scholars named for. He was a South African financier and uh, statesman. And uh, what happened in the story is he had invited a young man to dine with him at his house. And this young man had just recently gotten off a long train travel and he had no time to change. And so he shows up at Rhodes's house in, you know, crumpled up clothing, all dirty and sweaty from traveling. And all of the, the, these other guests were finely dressed. And he felt very uncomfortable while he waited with the rest of the company for their host to appear, Cecil Rhodes. And after what seemed a long time, Rhodes did finally appear, wearing a shabby old blue suit. The young man later learned that when he arrived, Rhodes had been dressed in his finest evening clothes for the evening and was about to welcome his guests. And when told of the traveler's dilemma, Rhodes had at once returned and changed into these old clothes to make the young man feel more comfortable. That's kindness. Just a, a simple act to care for how another person might be feeling. And as I thought about this passage this week, this, this phrase, love is kind, I was, I was moved literally to, to tears as I thought about how good our church is at showing kindness. As my mind was really flooded with memories of how I've seen this kindness get expressed. Just even this week, Jason Keneshita brought us a meal, driving all the way out from Timber after a, I don't know, 10-hour day's work, an unpleasant job, and he was exhausted. And then, just a few days later, the Isaacsons did the same thing for us, coming nearly as far I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard Bruce is doing this for me. Bruce is doing that for me. I've heard, I've heard Bruce's name so many times in the last few years of just different projects that he's done. And the only way I'd know is if this person told me. Bruce is very quiet about and modest about his services. Also, Doug and his tractor. If you have a need in your yard, Doug will show up, maybe unannounced, with his tractor ready to serve. Uh, when Cincy, uh, I don't even know how to describe the situation. Her, her um, she had a plumbing problem uh, for weeks on end. Julio and other members of the church were there serving in their free time, and that, that's not. Those are just things that have come to my mind just in this week. But time and time again, this church is really good. It's showing kindness. And so just as an application, if you're not sure what to talk about after the church service today, ask one another how you've seen this church show kindness to you. And I think it'd just be refreshing to your heart to know and be reminded of the ways this church shows kindness again and again. So these first two depictions of love, patience and kindness, give us both the passive and active expressions of love. It's love is in in a passive sense. It's patient. It bears with others, but it's active in a sense in that it shows kindness. Seeking to meet other people's needs. The next eight depictions of love highlight what love does not do. Love does not envy or boast. That is, love does not pursue selfish passions Sometimes it's translated, does not envy, as in the ESV. The word envy, though, is the word zelao, which is where we get the English word zealous from. So it's often translated zealous. Sometimes it's translated in the negative, like it is here, jealousy or envy. But the word is, it's the same word in Greek. And it means to have an intense passion for something. And here the context is clearly negative because it says love does not do this. And so it's best understood as an ardent desire to have something with a selfish motivation. An ardent desire to have something 
with a selfish motivation. And ironically, what, lo- what Paul says love is not here is what most people think love is like. Because often in movies or in songs, the characters in these books are possessed by love and they're driven to each other because they feel like they cannot live without the other person. And they say things like, I need you or I must have you. And it's that intense sort of love that gets expressed to people think, oh, that's love. If you have this passionate desire to have something. But Paul says, that's not love. That's selfishness. Rather, instead of having a a self-seeking passion, love is an other-seeking passion. So if you want to know if you love somebody, it's, it's defined by what are you willing to go without in order to help meet that other person's needs. That you're so consumed with passion for that person that you will sacrifice everything you have to care for them. That's love. Not possessing them for yourself. That you would be satisfied. So it's an other-seeking passion. Jonathan Edwards in his book, Charity and Its Fruits, which is really just a commentary on this uh, passage, 1 Corinthians 13, explained that if a Christian ever became aware of this sort of selfish passion, this envy in their heart, he will not suffer it to break forth and show itself in words or actions. He will be grieved at whatever he sees of its movements in his heart and will crucify within him the hateful disposition and do all in his power to grow contrary to it in outward action. So if we see this in our heart, this envy, this selfish zeal, we would do everything we can to crucify it because it's not love. Because love does not envy. It also does not boast. That is, love does not seek to exalt itself. To boast or brag is to parade one's accomplishments or strengths. To draw attention to oneself. And contrasted to envy, which seeks to make others desire what you have. Or sorry, contrasted, that is what boasting is. What envy is, is you want, you desire what others have. Boasting seeks to have others desire what you have. It wants others to recognize all one's accomplishments and strengths in hopes of elevating your importance in the eyes of others. In Mark 9, disciples learned an important lesson on boasting while walking to Capernaum with Jesus. And in, in that chapter, it says they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. See, Jesus wanted them to recognize that loving, that to be the greatest meant one must be the servant of all. Which is in direct contrast to what their boasting was leading them towards. See, on the way, they're wanting to talk about all their accomplishments and why they should be the greatest. And Jesus cuts right to the core and says, actually, if that's your attitude, you are least of all. Because if you're like Christ, if you love like Christ, you should be seeking to meet other people's needs, not elevate your own importance. And what's all the more stark 
in this passage is the section before is when Jesus announced to the disciples that the Son of Man must be betrayed and killed and then three days later rise again. And this is their response, is to boast. So they missed it. Their boasting demonstrated how far off the mark they really were. So a faithful Christian does not boast. It is not arrogant either. That means love does not inflate its own abilities or importance. The Greek word here, we've come across a number of times in 1 Corinthians. It, it means to puff up like bellows on a fire. Of the seven times, in fact, this word is used in the New Testament, six occur in 1 Corinthians. This is a problem that the Corinthians had. They would boast towards one another. This is what the Corinthians were doing. In 4.6, Paul contrasts what the Corinthians were like with the lives of the apostles. When he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written. Then none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Same word. And he says this in reference to an earlier statement. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Do you see this? They're puffing themselves up as if they had done something. But Paul says, even we apostles recognize we haven't accomplished any growth. If there's been any growth, it's because of what God has accomplished through us. Even the apostles had nothing to boast in. So there's no reason any Christian should be puffed up. Would want to elevate their own importance. Either by boasting, as we previously saw, or even by in their own mind. The Christian would not ask themselves the question, does so-and-so know who I am? Does, does this person recognize how important I am? Do they not know what I've done? It's not a question a Christian would ask. Because the Christian recognizes that he is not particularly important. Because if there's been any good that's been accomplished, it's because God has made the difference, not us. There's a great story told of Aidan, the Irish monk, who was the bishop of Northumbria, and he founded the, the famous monastery of Lindisfarne. And he had a great friendship with King Oswin, who was ruler of the former British province of Dera. And in support of the monk's ministry, the king had given him one of his finest horses to help serve him in his travel needs. Soon afterward, Bishop Aidan met a beggar who was asking for alms. He at once dismounted and gave the poor man his horse with all the costly trappings. When this charitable deed came to the king's ears, he taxed Aidan, saying, Why did you give away the horse that we specially chose for you to help you in your travels? When you knew that you had need of one, we have many less valuable horses that would have been suitable for beggars. Aidan replied, Is this foal of a mare more valuable to you than a child of God? The king pondered. Then suddenly casting his sword aside, knelt at Aidan's feet and begged forgiveness. Aidan, greatly moved, begged the king to go to dinner and be merry. And as Aidan watched the king go, he became very melancholy, very sad. When the bishop's chaplain asked why, Aidan replied, I know that the king will not live long, for I have never seen a king so humble as he is. He will be taken from us as a country is not worthy to have such a king. And the foreboding was correct. 
Shortly thereafter, King Oswin was treacherously killed by his northern neighbor, King Oswi. And like King Oswin, a Christian will not have an overinflated belief in our own importance. Especially in light of what Christ has done for us. Sixthly, love does not behave rudely. It's not rude. This means that love does not act crudely. It does not act and behave without manners. It does not offend by failing to be inconsiderate. Or by being inconsiderate, I should say. And recognize then, politeness isn't about wanting others to admire our elegance or our being well-bred and well-trained. That's not the point of being polite. That's not the point of understanding protocol. The reason for it is to love other people, to be so aware, to be trained, to be aware of your situations that you would not do anything that would bring offense to another person. So to... To behave well is not just something for the nobility, the British elite, we might think of. It's something that the, that the, that the lowest Christian should learn. As Paul said earlier, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul is just giving a practical application of what this sort of politeness looks like. Conforming our lives to the lives of others that we would not offend anyone. So it's not Christian to be offensive. Now, the truth might be offensive, and that's okay. But we should not be offensive because of our failure to care and love for others. We need to go out of our way to train ourselves and to train our children and to help one another to not be offensive, to not be rude. Love will endure great pain in order to not give offense, as is seen in the life of the Apostle Paul. But also, I I came across this story recently, the life of Tycho Brahe. The famous Dutch astronomer was actually um, killed himself because of his resistance to be rude. He neglected to relieve himself before a long banquet given by the Baron of Rosenberg. And his good manners prevented him from excusing himself from the table during this endless meal. And the result of that politeness was that his bladder burst and he died of an infection days later. I like that illustration because likewise a Christian will go out of their way to avoid offending others, even to their own hurt. It's okay, you can laugh. But it's sad at the same time. But a good illustration, I think, of what we should do to not be rude. Love is not rude. It also does not insist on its own way. It does not seek its own. This literally says, it does not ask things for itself. Love does not ask things for itself. It does not ask, what's in it for me? Paul presented actually a great illustration of what this looks like in uh, chapter 10, as we just read. Just as I do everything, not seeking to please myself, but that others, that they might be saved. And Paul, again, was just following the example of Jesus. Romans 15, 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's amazing. Consider again what Christ did for you. You deserved reproach. You deserved scorn. But he took it that you might not, not just bear that scorn, but you might not bear the wrath of God. 
And he didn't do that to please himself, but to care for us. This lack of self-interest was also displayed in the life of Eric Little. Now, many people uh, remember Eric Little because of his choice not to run the 100 meters because that race fell on the Sabbath. That's the story that's depicted in the movie Chariots of Fire. And of course, he ran the 400 meters instead, which is a race that he hadn't trained for. And yet, even though he hadn't trained for it, he ended up winning the gold. And not only that, he ended up breaking the world record in that race and at 47.6 seconds. But what many people are unaware of, though, is that Little was not even in his prime. He wouldn't be in his prime until four years later for the 1928 Olympics. But rather than pursuing more gold and more glory... Little set aside his track career in order to become a missionary to China. And while serving there, China was invaded by the Japanese. And Little, refusing to leave the people he served, was eventually imprisoned. And he ended his life as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, serving other peoples within a miserable internment camp. And all of the prisoners were given work responsibilities by the guards, most of which were highly unpleasant. I read this in his biography. One attorney said, I once saw him unloading supplies from the back of a cart. And I said to myself, why is he doing it? That's someone else's responsibility. Later on, I realized he did everything. The biographer said, Little saw prison life as simply a relocation of his ministry. So the, what he did while he was a missionary outside of prison, he just transferred that to what he would do in prison. He, he sought every opportunity he could to serve the needs of those around him. He took turns at pumping water. He cleaned the latrines. He chopped wood and rolled coal balls before taking that fuel to the elderly. He swept floors. He took away garbage. He carted sacks and food supplies and helped out in the kitchen. He played chess to stoke the competitive spirit of those who seemed resigned to giving up as prisoners. He did numerous odd jobs, shifting furniture, hanging washing lines, completing fiddly repairs. He put up a row of shelves for one of the prostitutes. And she said, Little was the only man here that ever came to my room not demanding favors. A fellow attorney remembering the 694 days Little spent in the prison said he was an unruffled spirit with a serene temper and a constantly smiling face. He never let anyone see him downcast, said one prisoner. Every day to him was precious. He threw himself into it to make others feel better about the situation we were all in. Langdon Gilkey, another fellow prisoner, remarked that Little didn't look like a famous athlete. Or rather, he didn't look as if he thought of himself as one. Gilkey regarded him as surely the most modest man who ever breathed. Love does not seek its own. Rather, it seeks to care for the needs of others. Love is also not irritable. That is, it does not brood over injuries. It means to be provoked or upset at someone. This is what the Greek commentator Thistleton says about the word. It's something between irritation and anger which takes offense because one's self-regard has been dented, wounded, or punctured by some sharp point. In our vernacular, we might say, love does not get ticked off. That's what it's describing. It doesn't fly off the handle when it's offended. It doesn't lose its temper. It doesn't react to an injury in a negative fashion. John Newton 
My favorite pastor encouraged one of his friends in regard to a conflict. He says, as to your opponent, I wish that before you set pen and paper against him, in our day we might think of responding to a Facebook comment or a blog. He says, and during the whole time you are preparing your answer, you may commend him by earnest prayer to the Lord's teaching and blessing. This practice will have a direct tendency to conciliate your heart to love and pity him. And such a disposition will have a good influence upon every page you write. If he's a believer, in a little while you'll meet him in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. If he's an unconverted person, he's a more proper object of your compassion than your anger. Alas, he knows not what he does. But you know who has made you to differ. So having a heart of pity for others rather than self-pity is what will prevent us from brooding over injuries and over offenses. Lastly, the last one we'll look at today. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. The ESV translate this phrase as resentful. I think it's a good translation. But literally it says, literally it says, does not keep a record of wrongs. And in fact, as I read this, I was reminded of a friend of mine who was an elder at a church I served at um, while I was up in Seattle. And he told me that when his father graduated from high school, his father, so my friend's grandfather, gave his father as a gift a book. And in that book was a record of everything his son had ever done wrong in his life. He said, here, son, here's your graduation gift. So that's an illustration, literally, of what love does not do. But Paul's not simply talking about writing down a literal tally of wrongs a person does. He's talking about even having a mental record of wrongs. This does not mean that we ignore sin, of course, but it does mean that we will treat sin in an understanding way. That when somebody sins against us, we wouldn't hold on to it. Love acknowledges sin, it confronts it, but it also forgives. The famous uh, preacher, uh, early church father, Chrysostom, said, Wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. A wrong done against love is like a spark that falls into the sea and is quenched. And likewise, this is what should happen to offenses done to us. And the reason for such a a response from a Christian is because we recognize that we have gotten not what we deserve. We understand our offense toward God and what he did on our behalf. And to remind us of this, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18 to be reminded of the parable that Christ gave about the unforgiving servant. Matthew 18. So I didn't put it on the slide because of just too much text. But it's good to read it. Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one of them, one was brought to him and he owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in his payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me. By the way, that's the same word. Love is patient. And I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers till he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is why love does not keep a record of wrongs. Because God does not keep a record of our wrongs. A failure to forgive others is a witness of our failure to recognize how much we've been forgiven. And just to bring us back to love, contrast this unforgiving servant's response to the response of the sinful women, woman who met Christ in the house of Simon the Pharisee. You remember that story in Luke chapter 7. When after forgiving this repentant woman, Jesus explained to the Pharisee, he said, Therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Her love came as a response of understanding how much she had been forgiven. And herein, really, we have the secret to understanding how to live out 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. It's an understanding how much God loves you. To know the love of God for you. The more you recognize and understand how much God loves you, you will be all the more compelled to love others in this way. And if you recognize you struggle to love others like this, part of the problem is that you, or at least maybe part of the solution, is that you need to spend more time meditating and remembering the love that Christ has for you and how much you've been forgiven by Him. And so to springboard into a transition to communion. I want to present us with some reminders of how much God does love us and how that's particularly manifested in the cross in what we celebrate at the communion table. Here are three passages I thought of that we should never forget, that we should seal upon our hearts. And I would ask you as, you, as you consider these passages, don't just read them. Meditate upon them. Allow the truths of these scriptures to elevate your affection and your worship in remembering how much Christ loves you so that we too would love others as He has loved us. For we must remember that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, if you doubt the love of God for you, he loved you while you were a wretched sinner, while you hated him. While you couldn't stand Him. While you had no desire to worship Him. While you had greater desire to hurt other people than to love Him. How much more, now that you're His child, does He love you 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Sound like I'm going through purity, sorry. That's emotion and hoarseness. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, nothing will ever get between you and God's love for you. He loves you with an infinite love. How will He not, through Christ, give you everything that you could possibly need and take you home into His eternal presence? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And I think even with this phrase, as a help, just consider the person you love or the people you love with the most affection in this world. Maybe it's a parent or a spouse or your children. Think about what that love is like. And then understand the love that God has for you is infinitely more intense. Right now. And not because you deserve it, but because 2,000 years ago, the Son of Man willed Himself to be crucified on your behalf so that you would never taste the wrath of God, but only know the love of God unto eternity. That freedom wasn't free. It came at a horrific cost. But that's what love does. That's what love does. And so as we come to the table, remember God's love for you, particularly manifested in the cross. As we take the bread and the cup, remember what Christ did. And remember also that as we take it together, we're professing as a body of believers, we're going to love one another like that. Because he has loved us like that. It's the, only, it's the only way we can respond if we remember truly and understand truly what he's done for us.